Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. This is Grind the Arch, oral histories of the St. Louis music scene. Hi, my name is Caleb True. Before we go any further, I have to tell you a story. So, I'm from St. Louis, hence the name of this podcast, Grind the Arch. Growing up there, I spent the better part of my youth, from age 12 to age 22, playing in bands in and around St. Louis. At the time, roughly 1999 to 2007, there were a lot of really good local bands. But it never occurred to me until much later that there might actually have been an abnormally large number of really good groups in our city. It would not have been unusual for St. Louis to have had maybe 10 great bands, but at the time, there was more like 50 or 60 great bands. I started realizing toward the end of the 2000s that perhaps there really was a kind of extraordinary creative boom in St. Louis in the early years of this millennium. But I was skeptical too. Was I simply nostalgic for the good old days? Or was there really a significant musical renaissance? My co-host Jim and I started this podcast in part to answer that question. Here's Jim. Hey there, my name is Jim Fitzpatrick and I'm from St. Louis. I started playing shows with my high school punk band in the early 2000s, mostly in basements and garages in and around Webster Groves. I began regularly playing in St. Louis proper around 2006 and played there frequently with my various projects until I moved to Colorado in 2014. Like Caleb, I look back on my time in the St. Louis music scene fondly and with reverence. Gone now, I see how unique it was and still is. I'm excited to work with Caleb and to talk with friends and acquaintances involved in the scene to get a clearer, fuller picture of the magic we observed and were once surrounded by. So we recorded this episode nearly a year ago now. I ought to mention that the views expressed by Mike Banker in this interview are not necessarily those of the conformists as a whole. I hope you enjoy. Uh, so before we get into the conversation we had with him, I wanted to ask if you had a favorite song of theirs. I think my favorite conformist song, which is really hard, it's hard to pick, but I think the one that I would always get the most excited when they would play it is uh, You're Welcome off mm-hmm. of 300. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that one's really good. Let me see if I can bring it up here. I mean, also, I just really love how that song, uh, how that looks live, where they're, they're just sliding opposite of each other. I feel like they played that at every conformist show I ever went to for at least until like 2004, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, 
Yeah, I thought something about that sliding really sticks in the brain. It reminds me, uh, like, it evokes similar feelings that I used to get when I was a kid and tornado sirens would go off. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, just kind of that or, like, the beginning of War Pigs, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Just that ominous, you know, something bad is going to happen. And that's that's what the beginning of that song sounds like to me. Awesome. Yeah. That's so interesting because uh, to me, like that, that uh, what they're doing is like it definitely takes on a much more comic tone in my mind. But uh, there, you're right. That sounds. Ex- I mean, that totally sounds like a siren. I just never that never occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the cool thing about the conformist too is that like it can be. I I think that people either lean a little more one way or the other mm-hmm. in regards to like this band's hilarious or <laughs> this band is like devastating
about you? Uh, I would probably go with uh, tax deduction. Let me see if I can bring it up here. song was so cathartic you mm-hmm. know to, to see live yeah you know, and i and i don't know if they would do the cymbal hits you know the, like the break before it gets insane mm-hmm. i don't know if there was a set amount of times for that mm-hmm. or if they switched oh. it up every time mm-hmm. it always felt really long but maybe yeah maybe they had some ability to gauge the audience or something yeah yeah that band is just like seeing them live it's, it's just like a hive mind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. four people but yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's still a hive mind yeah it's it's like a i mean it's like watching an orchestra like when he's when he's um using his uh, uh like whatever it is like a screwdriver or whatever he uses to like tap on the side of the cymbal stand or whatever mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it's just sticks but like i always thought he pulled something else weird out like something metal and was like tapping at it
Well, should we get into it? Let's do it. This is Mike Banker. So I'm in Illinois. I yeah, I am the only I am the only Illinoisan left in the band. Pat lives in. Pat went west a little bit, but everybody else is in the city. Jim was the bass player forever. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, and and Jim is not easy to forget. No. Uh, but Jim. So when I returned to the band in 15, Jim left at the same time. Like it was kind of a in and out type thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, we're all bros. Uh, I haven't talked to Jim in a, in a while, like probably in embarrassingly too long. I don't know how to tell the story other than like Jim was kind of ready to go. You know, he and I had been keeping up. I was not in the band at that point for four years. Mm-hmm. And Jim and I were talking and he said, hey, my maybe wife, maybe girlfriend at the time is pregnant uh i think that i'm gonna like leave in typical gym fashion he's like hey so you can take my place you want to play the bass you know and uh (laughs) and (laughs) uh it it worked out great because chris boron uh has always been kind of the fifth conformist and uh like the fifth beetle and uh you know, he's been a close friend of the bands since the early, early days. And, you know, he, he was close enough where he took my spot for a European tour in 11. And that was supposed to be temporary. And then, like, I came back for some a little bit. And then, uh, and then my life was pulling me apart. So I left. He took over on vocals. Jim was on bass. Uh, in 15, we did the big switcheroo where Chris Boron, who plays bass, that's his instrument of choice. He transitioned to Jim's role of bass, and I came back as vocals, and, and uh, it's been a really good lineup. It's been really good. Chris Boron is also very classically trained, so him and Pat, now 50% of the band is, like, schooled, you know, exceptional. at the, and, and Chris D is just, uh, his, his deal is that he's untrained, but he's so smart and wily that he is, he'll go to his house and then come come to band practice and bring something and everyone goes, what the fuck is that? You know, and that's how this band's worked forever. But now you have a, basically a rhythm section that goes, oh, okay, so we'll just do this. Yeah, it is a great lineup. The weakest link in the chain for the longest time has been me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm biding my time. If they find a really, really good vocalist, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, yep, I, I get it. It's my turn to go again. No, I, just, I, I don't know. I, I, I love it. And as long as they'll let me, I'm going to do it. So Sweet. That's great. I think yeah. it's rare and special to have a band like that's been going for that long. What is it? It's over 20 years now, right? Uh, our <laughs> Christy and I messaged each other April 23rd, which was the, let's see, April 23rd, 1997 was our first show. Sick. And that was, uh, yeah, what, 23 years ago? Uh, yeah, yeah. A month ago or whatever. So Was that in St. Louis? <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, okay. So we played in the landing of all places. Um, oh, wow. That what? was like the hot spot. But yeah. uh, there was this dumpy place called Bernard's Pub that was known for like, I, I guess the owner was just like, oh, okay, you're in a band, you can play. Uh, our original drummer had a it was his uncle or somebody there was a connection somebody knew the sound guy and we got a show and of course as kids you're like we have a show in st louis and in reality it was like some shitty tuesday night we brought (laughs) (laughs) i mean everybody had to be 18 to get in so like half our high school was outside and the other (laughs) kid got in like some of the senior (laughs) class was able to get in 
it, it was stupid and awesome at the same time. So I think I saw you for the first time in 1999. Um, really? I was really, really young, and it was actually the <laughs> first show, the first legitimate show I'd ever gone to. Boy, did that fuck me up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was at the Centro. Um, which oh then wow! Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that became the Tin Ceiling. Uh, yeah, and it was. So did you? Yeah, were you ahead. at the show? Were you at the show that Nineteen played? Maybe that was the third band. Um, I'll have to think. I'll have to think about that one. We, um, you know, we we played through both eras of that place when it was like the 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 Tintro, if you will. There there was that group of people that were doing that, and they were really cool, but they were a little like they were a little pretentious compared to the second wave of people that did that. The Tin Ceiling folks were a lot more uh, nice and nothing against the first people. They were great too, but yeah. um, we we were just us. We were outside talking to them and being jackasses and they were kind of a little standoffish a little bit. I thought they were all art people. Yeah, like mm-hmm. maybe Webster people or something like Webster art people. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Yeah, fucking Webster. You know, so, so yeah, I remember playing with 19 there. That was the standout show. I remember playing with like it was a weird there was a weird lineup where we played upstairs. I think in the Centro days we played in the basement and then later oh. on we played upstairs. And I think I think there was a show that was like us and Julia sets and Chris Deckard's like Featherly Decadence or something. Uh Corbeta Corbata. It was like a weird like non non meshing things. Oh, because you great, guys were upstairs you know. when I saw you. Uh, okay. I remember I was so young. I was hanging out with my other high school friends, and like the cool thing to do while the show was happening was not to watch the show, but to hang out in the basement on the couches. So maybe that was Tin Ceiling era already. I will tell you the story of my first St. Louis punk story. Yeah. Which yeah. was um, we were in high. Me and Chris D were in high school, and our friend uh, uh, John, who we called Weenus, uh, Weenus was out in. Uh, <laughs> he was in U City, and he picked up a flyer for a punk show randomly. You know what I mean? Like off a pole or something. <laughs> and we we were like, oh, oh my God, we need to go to this. I want to say it was like 96. Like we weren't a band yet. Or or if we were, it was just me and Chris playing stuff in my basement. We went to Punk Paradise. And uh, it was run by John Goddard. And I don't know if you know who John Goddard is. He's <laughs> a few years older than me. John Goddard, <laughs> I'll just tell you what it is. He rented... He rented a, a, a place on Washington Street that was like on the seventh floor. It was a real sketchy place. And he used to have shows there. And Chris D says the Promise Ring played there, but I don't know that. I, I, I find that hard to believe in that, like, they didn't ever seem that legitimate, but hard telling. We found a flyer. We went to the address. Uh, it was a sketchy ass place on Washington, which was really scary at the time. It was like 95 or 96, and we, we went up to the seventh floor, you know, and we're like, excuse me, mister, where's the punk show? You know, like kind of thing. <laughs> and and so part of the thing is it was like $5 or $7 to get in, and if you brought canned goods, you would you, you could get some money off. And Chris remembers it being as like a food not bombs type thing, but to me I said, I think John Goddard was eating the food that we brought. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was his... I'm not trying to put the guy down. I mean, it was genius. Like I later, years later, I had <laughs> yeah. heard that, like you know, that he lived in, he squatted, half squatted in, but he paid. I don't know. He paid whatever his rent was by having shows, and he would use the door to pay for his rent, and then he would have encourage people to bring food so that he had stuff to eat. And I'm like, that's that guy's a genius. <laughs> that's br- pretty brilliant. Damn. So we went to the show, and it was Johnny Angel, and it was this band called uh, and. 
if you had to try to spell this or look this up, I don't even know how it's called, Nephis Trusadot or something. I don't know if it is Latin or what the name came from. And we went to the show and it was, you know, I, I, I saw concerts at the American Theater and, and things like that, but I'd never been to like a, a little house show type situation before. Johnny Angel was four, I think four or five guys in suits. If you remember, Johnny Angel's drummer was um, Danny McLean uh-huh. uh, from... Grand Yulina. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, Grandulina. Yeah. Danny played drums, and the funny thing is that we went with our friend that we called Weenus, and we were laughing about how much Danny McLean and Weenus looked the same. They were like, they were both kind of uh, boyish, like they both were younger looking than they really were. And Danny was the youngest person in that band, so th- that was the only noteworthy thing. I wasn't really into Johnny Angel, they were hardcore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the singer was like jump kicking around. Nephis Trusadot was a bunch <laughs> of gutter punks. They they basically like uh, Chris and I were just we were discussing this morning. The singer played. He screamed through a delay pedal. I remember him having a nose ring, like the the septum piercing, mm-hmm. and he had a delay pedal that he was screaming through. And <laughs> they were kind of this wall of noise. They were like guys that they, they looked gutter punk. They smelled horrible, and they they like just put out a gigantic screeching horrible noise of 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 a sound and it was awesome we were fairly blown away by this show at the time we were probably listening to a lot of iggy and the stooges and like you know um maybe the jesus lizard and kind of bigger but also punk-ish bands and seeing like something like that was like wow okay that looks fun i want to do that yeah that's cool i mean i was gonna ask like what your initial influences were as a band What's funny is that Christy, if Christy listened to it uh, 20 years ago, then I'm just starting to get into it. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I, I was joking around with him today. I'm like, dude, when he and I lived together in the early 2000s, and he was listening to a lot of Unwound and, and things like that. Uh, I liked it. I, I thought it was fine. I never was just like, yeah, Unwound is the best. I was just like, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. you know. Um, but right now I'm all about Unwound. Like right now I, I, I can't get enough Unwound. And uh, That's a great band. Yeah. I can definitely hear uh, the Unwound influence in your band. Sometimes people make comments and I'm like, wow, I've never, like, I know that Sean O'Connor is a huge no, mean, no, no, no Means No fan. I think I've heard of two songs historically ever. And some people use that as comparisons to our music. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because I... I know that some people in my band enjoy No Means No, maybe even have as a record, but I wouldn't call it an influencer by any means. Yeah. Yeah. When did you guys start sounding uh, like the way that you then did for consistently for like 10, 15 years? Uh, I'm not really sure. The early days, uh, the, the songwriting was a little more sophomoric, but it was like a, a lot more rock oriented. But one of the things I've said before, I think, is that like, uh, the, the conformists never got together and go, let's do this or let's sound like this. Or what if we did something that sounded like this? Or we just all kind of got together and played. And over the years, I, I can speak for my own quote unquote songwriting. In the first couple of years, I had a lot of writing. And if Chris wrote something and it would start to fall in the like where the drummer could actually play to it. This is before Tom. Tom, if I have to go through the drumming history of the band, there's been a few. But the most the most important ones to remember are Tom and Pat. I mean, basically, uh, Sean O'Connor had his stint. Sean's a great friend. Uh, I think Sean got it and 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 did well. Sean likes a challenge, so he wanted to learn the conformist songs. He learned them at like 24 hours. Uh, the stylistic difference is what 
what wore away at the purveyors of the band that are are the keepers of the band sound. If, I'll just say that. Let's yeah. just say not me, not me. <laughs> but <laughs> but I I didn't disagree. I just um, you know coming from Tom who played with such power yeah. to Sean who plays with such finesse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, like we got so tight with Sean. We were razor sharp, like super tight. Uh, but the some of the really booming, powerful, stomping drum stuff kind of lost a little bit of an edge. So, and 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 I'm not I'm not taking that away from him. It's just not his style. Um, and and so I think Pat, um, Pat is he's oh he's he's a legend. I mean Jesus, he he, he came in and he fell in quickly. Pat, the person that I knew before the band that I had known from his stint and puppet show, right. and uh, for a while I thought <laughs> I thought Pat's. Uh, Pat was the guy I said that turned uh, adversary workers into a decent Minutemen-ish type punk band into mm -hmm. a thundering fuck your head up like stomp show. You know, like mm -hmm. there's adversary workers before Pat and after Pat, and they're distinctly different. And I much prefer the after Pat version. And I I'm not taking anything away from that band. To answer your original question, there there was an era of the band of the first few years, and there was probably ten songs written before Hatchet, which came out on our first kind of real release mm -hmm. on the on the seven inch. So there were probably, you know, eight we used to tell Josh Levi because he was he was a completist and he really wanted to find some old stuff. And we did have a tape and some people had that tape and I'm really sorry for that. You know, if somebody wants some like, oh, you want to hear them before they were good, you know, that it's fine. It had its place. We were still kids, so you know, we were literally, you know, using cassette dubbers to make those things in my basement. I mean, it wasn't like we went to a pressing place that made cassettes for us. I mean, we were, you know, we were or, doing it ourselves. Yeah. It's the original way to do it. Yeah, man. Well, and, and, and uh, you know, we thought we were cool. We were we were leaving them. We would leave a, a couple of them at Vintage Vinyl on the tables and shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't take us very long to, like, decide that we don't really care what the quote-unquote career of the band was going to be, like, Chris said to me years and years ago, we, we talked about stuff, and he said, do you want to be a great band, or do you want to be a band that like will do well and make money? And I said, I want to be a great band. And he goes, good, okay, we're, we're on the same page. Sick. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. You know, he's like, we, we can be a popular band. I could write some fucking dumb shit, and you know, we, we, can, we can make it happen. Let's just do what we want to do. And, and we've always... I mean, it's, if it's not obvious, we've always done what we want to do. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it, it is It is an interesting thing when, and, and, and Pat kind of did a little bit of this, and Chris Boron's the newest one to do some of this, which is, there is a lot of uh, unforeseen suffering to being in the conformists, and I don't mean like ribbing or anything funny, I just mean like having having not many people come to your shows and working so hard in, to write and record these songs and then kind of being disappointed by reaction or whatever. Chris D and I have a callus on ourselves from that and new people, it takes a little while. Like, it, and, it, and it affects me too. Like tour is what really can get you. When you get into a longer tour, you get, in, you, you get past two weeks and you start to go like, ugh, like you, you get worn out, you get disheartened when people aren't at your shows. Europe is a totally different animal because it's so exciting at everywhere. It's so fun. Even if three people come to your show, it's so fun all the time. 
oh, well, three people came to the show, but the show is the reason that I'm in this small town in France checking out this kick-ass old stuff and spending an awesome day eating the best food in the world. Yeah. And th that doesn't go away. You don't, you know, you don't, maybe it does. Maybe some of these bands, maybe these bands like, uh, like Oxes or some of these bands that are established, quote-unquote, big bands that have been through it all, maybe they're just like, oh, I guess I'll go to Europe again. But we still get excited. <laughs> Bastards. It's still super, yeah, it's still super awesome. Well, yeah, I always felt like maybe the longevity of your band partially has to do with the fact that you all are um, so close, and it always seemed to me that the the just as an observer, like the writing would have to be collaborative, and you'd all have to be okay with playing to like average room of 10 people for the most part. My, my first impression of the band, uh, I think it was my 19th birthday, <laughs> and I saw you guys, I saw you guys play... <laughs> Oh, Radio Cherokee with Warhammer 48K and Ghost Eyes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I heard the name The Conformists, and I thought it was like, I thought you guys were going to be like a straight-edge hardcore band. Or a ska band, and like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I was pretty excited about it. You know, like at the time, I was like, all about straight-edge and shit. And uh, I saw you guys come on, still thought, yeah, these guys might be a straight-edge hardcore <laughs> band. You know, like yeah, you took yeah, your yeah, shirt yeah. off, you had to repent yeah. on your chest and everything. And then you guys just started playing, like, the most fucking warped version of, like, kind of, like, depraved, dark punk music. And, like, it hit me immediately. Because I felt like, like, at the age of 19, I felt so, like, set apart and different from everybody else, as I imagine many, like, 19-year-olds feel. But, yeah, man, it was just incredible. And they were, like four or five people in the audience just like they knew <laughs> they knew all the bits that you guys were doing and at the time i didn't realize they were bits i just thought that they were like really tuning into some like ethereal consciousness you guys are projecting outwards or something <laughs> and uh man it was just like fucking nuts thank yeah, you I just, thank you that's, yeah that's great yeah yeah and like i was too intimidated to buy a cd from you guys so i picked <laughs> it up at vintage vinyl uh 200 which yeah. some of the coolest packaging, uh, Caleb and I were talking about it last week. The packaging for 200 is just like insanely goofy. I haven't seen another shooter before or since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. I, I, I thought maybe they'd catch on and like you know uh, that maybe uh, Moby would do it next, and we'd be like, God damn it! Um, <laughs> Fuck you, Moby. Yeah. We we used to tell people we played with Moby because we played this music festival in Detroit one time and it, it was like a South by Southwest type thing. We played in the shittiest club at the worst time at the worst, you know, it was the worst thing ever in the same general music festival in the in the amphitheater or the dome or whatever Moby played. So we're like, oh, yeah, we played with Moby once really, on the <laughs> nice. same bill. It was crazy. How you guys were when I saw you in, in 1999. <laughs> And then again, I think the most recent time I saw you was 2016. I just know, like, if I want to be laughing the entire set, that's something that can totally happen. Uh, <laughs> I mean, part of that must be chemistry that's existed and, like, been a part of, like, how you guys work live for, you know, years and years. But I don't know. I can't think of another band, like, unless I'm on a really weird trip and maybe Yowie where I can, like, yeah, if I want to turn this into, like, something that's funny to me yeah, for, like, 25 minutes straight like that is that's it can totally happen <laughs> that's pretty I great also, yeah i also want to add that like there's you know the level of comedy in it but also like i remember when i first heard you heard you guys play your welcome off of 300 and it was mm -hmm. just like had such real emotional content to it you know like it just sounded so 
sad to me. You know, yeah. meanwhile, like maybe five minutes before that, everyone's laughing in the venue. And I think that that's something that's super unique about your band. Yeah, I, I guess I think when we write a record, you know, you know how a normal process of you guys have both both done this. You know, you, you, you work out the songs, you, you spend all kinds of time on them, you get them down, you get them tight, you get them recorded. The record comes out and you're fucking tired of them. You don't want to play a single yes. one of the songs, you know. You know, then later everyone's like, "Oh, your record's good, and I like this song." And they're like, "Oh, yeah, okay, just don't make me play it." You know? <laughs> yeah. Something I notice with our band is that it seems like right now a lot of people are getting into Nun Hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, divorce came, divorce came and went, and I kind of thought like, to me, divorce is such a, it's such a dark record. I was like, man, coming out of Nun Hundred and going to divorce, man, divorce is black. It is dark dark black to me and maybe it's my perception because i had a lot of like it's neither here nor there but my my second divorce to the same woman was basically like a handshake i mean we had two kids and 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 we determined it wasn't going to work and it there wasn't a lot of drama it was pretty simple we both Mm -hmm. agreed that it was a good time and that it just wasn't working and we tried twice and whatever and and the emotion from divorce must have been subliminal somewhere in there because I never, you know, I, I wondered because of my actual divorce and the record divorce coming out, they, they were both in short order. They happened in the same year mm-hmm. that maybe people thought that they were associated and they, they may not actually be. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, believe it or not, the, the album titled Divorce was Christie's idea. And, you know, I was like, oh, well, I mean, it's not about my divorce. And Chris is like, no, no, no. I mean, like, I'm divorced. So it's divorce. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, whatever. I get it. Like, people might assume it's mine, um, but they don't have to. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be my divorce. Chris could be angry, angry about his divorce also. <laughs> so, so it's divorce. I, mean, I, I want you to know that we were three songs done on the new record, on the newest record, which um, doesn't really have a title yet. But... The cover art is done, and I can't wait for you to see it. Cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah. It's so much uh, on, a, on a so much better level than 200. It's not even funny. <laughs> oh, now I'm really excited. That's tight. Yeah. This, uh, I, I like all the cover art. Chris D is kind of the cra- graphic designer of the band. In the early days, so I did the hatchet version of the hatchet cover, and then nice. we used the Black Dolly image that we photocopied a million times some of the early artwork of the band we liked the the washout that xerox machines do so we would take an image and xerox it a million times or or one that we would fuck with the settings on the xerox to make it washed out Mm -hmm. and some of our flyers and stuff reflected that he kind of he's one of those people he doesn't do it in practice he's not somebody that makes art in his house yeah but he'll just like have an idea bring it to conception and show us like Hey, I made a one-off spray-painted silver micro cassette. We should do as a release, and I'm like, <laughs> "That's fucking fantastic! I love it." You know, he's like, "Well, I figured out you can only fit, you know, four minutes on them or whatever." You know, he's already worked all the science out. <laughs> I don't know if you this may have been off you guys' radar, but um, a few years ago, Electrical Audio Studios in Chicago has a message board, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in the early days of this message board, and there's people from all over the world on it, the, the joke was that we were the premier rock forum. You know what I mean? Like, so the purveyors of this message board were called the PRF, okay? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and so they started in like probably 
the year after the touch and go 25th anniversary in Chicago. So whatever year that was. <laughs> anyway, they started doing barbecues every year, blah, blah, blah. The conformists were always a part of it. I, I really enjoyed that group because they're all really smart. It's a very diverse group of music fans and they, I can always tell when the conformists play to smart people that are kind of tuned in. You know, I can see by the reaction that they get it or they're, they're, they're enjoying it. And sometimes the very visceral stuff that we do like just goes right past somebody. Anyway, they're, they're some of my favorite audiences and, and they, I have a lot of friends in that group. They did a barbecue and they wanted unique giveaways. They wanted to do grab bags and all these bands are putting their stickers and their CDs and their vinyl. And well, I shouldn't say CDs cause they all love vinyl, um, but they, <laughs> They, they, they were putting some stuff together. So Chris and I, of course, went to like, okay, we, we came up with two concepts. One was mine, one was his. His was, um, he took a cassette, he took a, a CD, a CDR of stuff of our songs, some songs that he had put on a CDR, and he put a bolt through the middle of it and Loctited the, um, Loctited the, he used Loctite to Loctite the nut on it so you couldn't get it off. And then I told him, you know, like, you, I, I'm, I'm handier than he is. So I said, you need to take a hammer and beat the threads down so they can't back it off. And it was a carriage bolt. So like you couldn't put a wrench on the other end of it. So he made this like locked music trap thing. And, and, and my idea was stupid. It was like, uh, we, we took bread, we took bread, a slice of bread. We put a CDR on it. I put a ring of mustard on it, put another slice of bread on it and I put it in the sandwich bag. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, a lot of these people like still, you know, like one of the guys, one of the guys sawed off the bolt so he could listen to the CD. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and sick. And hopefully was very disappointed. Uh, I found out later on that like some people that were able to saw the bolt off and play the Chris's disc, but the mustard that m may have burned into the CDR somehow, the acid of it or something. Yeah. So it would, those wouldn't play. Yeah. We thought, <laughs> we thought his wouldn't play, but it ended up being mine that didn't play. Oh, so man. it was kind of funny. It's, it's mostly for our own entertainment. <laughs> oh, it has to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you do something for 20 years? I like, it's so glad you guys are still a band. That's so much fun. <laughs> that something that I really liked when I was a teenager still exists. Yeah, that's, thank you. I, um, uh, I do, I, I really do enjoy uh, one of the best things about being 23 years in a band, uh, besides like discussing that my band is over older than some people I know. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I do like, I do like hearing the stories of, of the, the Josh Levi's talking about like, man, I was, you know, I was 14 at my first conformist show and yeah. I was like, what the fuck? And you know, all these people that are like, uh, you know, I, both of you guys are included in this company, but just, uh, I really love hearing the stories of people's, uh, especially like in their teenage years when they're seeing what we do for the first time. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's really, I, I love to hear the, I love to hear that take. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be a lot of fun. I mean, it only, it only, that's only possible because you guys have been around and been, been like consistently around for that long. I also, I feel like I conveniently missed, uh, the four years you weren't in the band, but like, to me, <laughs> like, I don't think I, I would see the conformist if you weren't the front person. I would say uh, Chris Boron did a great job. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of those deals where, you know, he's a he's a far better singer than I am for sure. Mm -hmm. He could sing the songs uh, the way I do or better, uh, mostly better probably. But I think the live show is what tra changed a lot. I mean, he was not, and he'll tell you this, I don't think he was very comfortable being the 
confrontational front man. <laughs> it's not really as... Uh, if you want to hear the music of the conformist, his tenure doing that was... was I, I saw him a few times, and you know, a couple of people were like, why are you in the audience? Like, if you could make the show, why... Yeah, I'm like, no. no <laughs> but I, I also... There was a little bit of uh, what the fuck factor, because part of the reason... They had just gone to Europe. They're all fired up to write a new record and the tour, tour, tour. They're talking about all this tour they want to do. I'm like, guys, I got a fucking newborn. I'm, I, I've said this before. I, I didn't want to be the guy that bums my friends out. At, at first, I was like, nope, I'm going to try to do both as long as I can. Something's got to give, but I'm going to keep trying to do both as long as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, Eventually, I realized I was disappointing my friends a lot, and I thought I, I should stop. Mm-hmm. I, had heard, I had heard some... Jim had said something to somebody that got back to me and it wasn't insulting or mean in any way, but he, he very matter of factly was saying like, it sucks a little bit because he's really like, he's affecting our scheduling and doing things, but we don't want to kick him out because he's our friend. And we, you know, and so like I found out that they were at a teetering point on not knowing what to do. And I thought, you know what, I'll just, I'll make this call. I think, I think I should make this call for them. And, and it's the right thing to do. And God, it sucks to be a normal person. You know what I mean? Like to, <laughs> you know, not, not going to band practice twice a week. I'm like, hey, well, this time in my life, I can do something stupider and far less rewarding. Um, <laughs> Word, yeah. <laughs> but I can only go so long without wanting to just flat out go, go bonkers. You know what I mean? Just go out. My psyche and everything it, it needs a good tantrum like you know what i mean yeah it needs a good in my life i'm in control and trying to be in control of everything and to lose lose that for at least 30 minutes at a time here and there is is something that it's necessary for my existence yeah hey um, mike yeah what's what's the strangest show you've ever played Ooh, there's a couple strange ones for different reasons i was telling somebody about it and forgive me jim if it was you when we were talking last but I'm happy to hear it again. So it wasn't the conformists per se. Um, the conformists for a short while were in trouble and weren't allowed to play places in St. Louis. And I can get into that story if you want. Um, oh, yeah. In the early <laughs> days. <laughs> okay. So the story is a lot more overblown than what really happened. But 105.7 The Point used to do these Monday Night Metals at Pops. It was called Monday Night uh-huh. Metal. And they had a bunch of local bands that were suckers that would pay two or three hundred dollars to get a roll of tickets to sell to their friends to play these pops gave up a shitty night of business on a monday night let the local radio station like the big rock star station um uh have five the 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 bills were like six seven eight bands i mean it was super trying but anyway they did monday night metal monday night metal was something that i for whatever reason we decided we we needed to do this <laughs> they told us that like here's how it works we give you a whole roll of tickets. you know we, we you give us two hundred dollars we give you a roll of tickets and if you sell all the tickets you'll make a hundred dollars and we were like <laughs> yeah yeah we're not going to do that but somehow they let us still play we basically nice. told them no uh i guess maybe it was just uh, an avenue to play pops and we thought that would be funny or something but <laughs> yeah. um we played with a bunch of metal bands. We played Vampire Moose. We played with Incision, which was a hardcore band from oh, wow. Belleville. Uh, <laughs> Vampire. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so 
So, so my memory, one, that show was interesting because, oh, it was 99, wasn't it? Um, the reason I remember that show, it was the week after the Rams won the Super Bowl. So the seven band bill, part of it is there's some kind of idiot judges that are sitting at the bar or something. I, don't, I have no idea, but <laughs> they were going to judge the best band that night, which fuck if I know. And the, that band was going to get in a tournament or something. And the winner gets to play the side stage at Point Fest at noon or you know what i mean some <laughs> shitty slot you know what i mean some horrible horrible prize yeah that's right you guys can play the parking lot at point fest at 8 a.m <laughs> it whatever it was it, the the grand prize was the worst thing ever anyway yeah um we played uh the band before us was incision they were from belleville they were hard this fucking hardcore singer is doing the doing his moves up on this gigantic fucking kiss stage that you know you're on it pops <laughs> and he's swinging the microphone all over the place and blah 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 and and at the end of the set he does this big he chucks the mic he just chucks the mic hits the drum riser whatever conformists get up there we get going we start playing the first song so side note the other thing that was horrible about these shows they started early and they wanted all the bands to be there at the at the beginning, and they drew the order out of a hat, which was awful. And of course, of course, oh. of course, we drew like the 11:30 slot. So <laughs> we had probably eight or nine friends that stuck it out this whole fucking time. Okay, yeah. yeah. And they were getting more and more drunk. They were really, <laughs> really drunk. And so if you know the guys from uh, There's a Killer Among Us, if you know Valo, you know uh, uh, yeah. Jason mm-hmm. Timmerman. Those guys are not guys you want to fuck with and you're really, really drunk. You know, when they're really, really drunk. Excuse me. So we go to play. First song, my mic is cutting in and out. I'm pointing at the microphone and some dipshit in pony shoes with big tongues and uh, and sweatpants who's running sound gets out, runs down, and, and changes the microphone out. Start the second song and it's just cutting in and out. And the sound guy, he, he's done. He He's pissed. He thinks we did something, whatever. Maybe he's getting burned out on the seventh band you've seen tonight, whatever. (laughs) He just, we're in our second song and he starts taking the drum mics off. And Tom's like, I'm, you know, what are you doing? And he's just playing. He's just like, I'm not stopping playing because some fucking dipshit is with a ponytail is trying to take his mics off my drums. We're going to continue playing. So we didn't stop. (laughs) So we're at Pops and we didn't stop playing. And then uh, somebody off stage was telling people to get us off the stage and a bunch of fucking meatheads got on the stage and we're like going to try to force this and we continue to play and <laughs> our drunk friends started getting in you know, altercations with the bouncers at Pops and then it got ugly and then the cops came and you know you don't want the Sarge police at your show I just <laughs> I want you to know that so I, I was like dudes let's get the fuck out of here so we bailed out the back door anyway it got out. We had an altercation at Pops. You know, you get a reputation pretty quick of causing trouble at Pops. And, you know, Pops is not a place you, you know, it's not an easygoing place. You guys know about Pops, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible yeah okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's a terrible place. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the Pops thing got out. We had a guy, Eric Carlson, who, who used to talk to other people in town about our band and, and talked up the thing a little bigger than it may have been. And, yeah. Um, nobody really wanted us to play at their places, or we'd call to try to book a show. Like, excuse me, Mister, can we play at you know? Can we play at six o'clock on Wednesday at the Creepy Crawl? You know? <laughs> so nobody really wanted to book us for a minute. So we invented this other band called the Mellow Feathers. Like, so 
the Mellow Feathers started as a way to get shows, but ended up uh, becoming an art project of ours. <laughs> there was this huge art show called Outside the Box. They rented out all of uh, the Lent Brewery. I mean, it was huge. And they had installations everywhere. It was a really grandiose project, and it was fucking awesome. It was our first show, maybe. So we invented, we started doing this in practice, but we invented this concept where we had this gigantic digital clock. We were supposed to play at 1130. So the way we practiced this out is that we would have the clock set at 1130. And we had a set, and the set was written uh, in time increments. So from 1130 to 1132 was stare at the audience. So for two <laughs> solid minutes, we stand like statues and stare at the audience. And then at, as soon as you watch the clock go from 1132 to 1133, as soon as it hits 1133, we were as loud and as fast as we can. So we drug out, I mean, we, we had three guitar players with full stacks. I mean, we brought out some big sound for this. And when we went from dead quiet to like as loud and as fast as you can, like on an instant, as soon as that clock switched, it had a really awesome effect. We wrote a set full of concepts that, that it was a half hour set and it was all based on time. So we would like 1148 to 11, 1149. It was, <laughs> we had, we had one where we applaud for ourselves. So or just applaud and it's just like it's everybody in the band clapping we did one thing i think it was like clap for two minutes or five minutes it was just way too long it, it was like your hands start hurting you know you're like you're, you're just you know you're clapping and cheering and you're just like oh my god when is this gonna be over some of it was a lesson in endurance the first that first mellow feathers show will always stick in my mind because it descended in a pure fucking madness it wasn't the conformist so i thought okay i'm not i'm not gonna do the shirt off thing i'm gonna put a sunglasses on like uh whatever like for, forget how we looked it just we had this big box of porn that we had found and we, we had a, <laughs> we were i walked around and we started tearing these porn magazines up and we put we covered the floor in porn and the whole floor was covered in pages of porn magazines never do this i want you to i want to tell you this never ever ever do this but we handed packages of black cats out to everybody in front like just we started handing them out to people in the audience <laughs> Never do that. It is always a bad idea. Just want you yeah, to know. I bet. <laughs> so, so we start playing and we're doing our thing. When when we went all loud and all fast, we're all flailing around and being nuts and whatever, running around, being crazy. And the the last the the amount of time varies, but the end of every Mellow Feathers set is attack the audience. So there's usually a time increment, whether it's eleven fifty two or if it's 11.58, that's when, like, on, a, on the switch of the clock, we turn and run out in the crowd and, and attack the audience. Early on in this set, we realize we're getting bombed by, by black cats. They're throwing them, they're lighting and throwing them back at us, and they're exploding all around us. <laughs> the space we're in is hanging, like, sulfur, that smoke from, from fireworks, yeah. is hanging low in the air, and, and it's, it's dangerous. They're just exploding next to our ears, and we're running around and these magazines you realize are very slippery like oh, they're shit. super glossy porno magazines and if you step on one you're going to eat shit so we're like wiping out and bombs are going off and it just it was it was a crazy show. it was in all fairness it's probably like on par with a normal scarecrow radio set but <laughs> fair uh, but but for, but for us, it was um, Scarecrow Radio is usually some level of intoxicated as a group. There was none of that. It was just at the time I was probably a lot more closeted in this. But um, I, I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. And <laughs> nice. at the time, I probably didn't talk about it much. But 
at the end of the set, I see this folding chair. So I pick up the folding chair and I just start smashing myself in the head with it, you know. And I, I thought like, oh, this would be cool. I'll, I'll bust myself open with this chair. And I, I didn't. All I did was just keep walloping this chair in my forehead. And yeah, it, it didn't end well. But I remember distinctly at the end of the set, uh, an old friend who I haven't seen in forever. There was this, do you know the writer Paul Friswald for the RFT? Paul's been doing the, like, the calendar for the RFT for years and years and years. He walked up to me after the set and he holds up the chair like, dude, like, look at this fucking chair. Like, like look, at you, look at what you did this chair. And I was like, oh shit. Like, cause I kind of turned it inside out. Like, I, you know, anyway, <laughs> wow. that was a crazy show. One of my favorite things, one of my other favorite shows is we were on tour and I, it must've been 2010 because uh, Pat was in the band. Do you guys know, um, um, uh, Nick Podgurski from, he's in, yes. God, he's, he's in, yeah. He's a legend. UConn. That guy's amazing. Yeah, UConn, right, right. Yeah. So, a million other bands. <laughs> yeah, and, and all good. Like, everything he yes. does is gold. Him and Sam from UConn, uh, mm-hmm. Sam at the time in 2010 was working in some hoity-toity jazz theater thing in, in Baltimore, and he's like, uh-huh. I want to have the conformists play this jazz theater. You guys have to dress up and you guys have to play quietly. And we were like, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. In. You know? Yeah. So on that tour, we were in Chicago and we went to thrift stores and I bought a great suit for 12 bucks. Shoes, everything. Like, I was like, man, this suit was made for me. Holy shit. Like, I found a great find. Chris D found an amazing suit as well. We dress up. It's upstairs. It's this 100 year old little theater thing. And there's like six people there. But we did a quiet set. And man, did I love that. That was so fun. I wasn't sure that we would like it. And uh, Julian, um, we actually, we were with Pass Montaigne, the, uh, the, they were the French dudes, we used to call them. The French dudes were with us on that tour. And I don't think they liked playing quiet. I don't think that they enjoyed that show as much as we did. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think Pat loves playing quietly as much as Chris D and I do. But I, I, really, I really do enjoy it. Um, it, it, it has this really tense feeling that I just, I love so much. And, and we brought it back a couple of times. We played a, we played a, a packed house at Quencher's uh, in Chicago with one of these PRF barbecues, I think in like 2011, maybe, maybe before I left. I left in November of 11 for four years. We started the set quietly. And what was great is when it's in a loud bar environment, you could be playing for four minutes before people realize that you're playing. And when you're playing that quietly, it's so fun to be just in the background playing and watch one by one. There's video of it, and, and you may want to... We, we went from quiet to hand to doom, and I, I sucked hand to doom up, so don't, don't, get, don't get too excited about hand to doom. We, we did a quiet set that turned into hand to doom, and yeah. uh, it, the effect was awesome in that like it's, it's shot from across the room. You see a ton of people there, and a lot of people turn sideways to each other talking. And then like, you'll see somebody turn and stop and stop talking and watch us. And then the other person next to him is still talking to him and then they get it. And you could see one by one as a lot of people in the audience start to tune in. <laughs> and it's, it's great effect. And then going from quiet to loud is, is kind of where we started to play with a lot of those. We love those was, dynamics too. I was gonna say, you guys have always like had a, a great sense of dynamics as a band. I- I think that's one of the, the things that makes your live show so engaging. The other thing is, I think yeah. I think the first time we played the tap room was real weird because it was before they did the stage and before the tap room had kind of been reconfigured, and we played in the dining room upstairs. Oh man! Oh, yeah, right. I've seen some shows and there. and uh, 
yeah my quote-unquote last show was was before <laughs> they put the stage in that room but that it was that already was cool show. to play there so yeah you guys played for like an hour uh, and a half or something that night yeah we had three different drummer arrows play in that set too and that was a lot of fun those were those were part oh, yeah. of the fun things like if we were going to mix it up if we were going to play for that long we were going to let tom play some songs sean play some songs sean was responsible for i i think part of the thing that that was the stylistic difference that was a, a difficult thing for Sean was the songwriting portion of it. We spent two years trying to write songs and we would come up with something and kind of go, I don't really like it. But after all that struggle, he was the writer of the song Quality off of None Hundred. And, mm-hmm. and the, the, the really quick hi-hats and stuff and all that stuff, that's all Sean. That's all Sean-isms, you know. And, and, that makes sense. Um, we, we sometimes laugh because that guy is so energetic that that it's very it's hard to slow him down you know what i mean sometimes mm-hmm. and and the conformist sometimes can do tempo changes and 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 he was awesome at everything but sometimes maybe slowing down maybe at the time at the time it went perfectly and then if you go back and listen to some stuff we did live in that era you go holy shit we play that fast it's all that diet mountain dew he drinks yeah I... it's like hummingbird food he's just yeah, he's... <laughs> yeah. and and you know yeah. he's he's the guy that you know on stl punk would write four page article responses to everybody <laughs> oh and yeah. and he was he, he would be he would be warring with people he'd be trolling people on stl punk and writing his thesis at the same time he's a genius i uh oh yeah i, I jammed oh, yeah. with him for a brief moment and in his basement. Have you seen his practice space, either of you? You know, I, I, I used to practice, Conformist used to practice at his house when he was uh, off Hampton there. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw the early incarnations of the basement that Yowie was going to practice. I was going to ask you, uh, didn't you, weren't you almost in Yowie or in Yowie for a minute or, or yeah, trying to? I don't know how much I was ever in the band, but we, we practiced consistently for three months. Uh, maybe longer. Maybe it was more like six months. It was like a better yeah. part of like dead of winter through like spring, basically. And Did you I, play that show in, in Minneapolis with them? See, that's the, the thing. Yeah, we never actually played any shows. I don't know if he was ever satisfied with my playing and then maybe that had something to do with it. Um, wow, but I, I learned their, yeah, I learned all of... Um, cryptology? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I learned all of cryptology, which... Uh, yeah, that Kudos was to you. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I developed like a. Um, so I was supposed to take over for I think it was Jim who played the low the low end guitars. If oh that... no, no, Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the low end guitar. So that's who I was um, okay. replacing, or yeah, who I was supposed to replace the whole time I worked with him. Oh, um, okay, gotcha. And uh, I don't know. Sean was very patient. I think in the end, uh, like he never was like, no, this isn't working. I think at a certain point, I was just like. Uh, I don't know if I, I think God, maybe I'm not the right play person for this job. And, and we just sort of like stopped practicing. But Speaking of like a meticulous, like composition for music, Caleb, you're talking about learning an entire Yowie record, which is a huge feat. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike, the conformist composition process seems like a collaborative effort. You've been a band for like 23 years, you know, like, what do you think it is about St. Louis that harbors this kind of musicianship? I, I wish I could draw a straight line from the dazzling Kilman to the through the conformist and beyond. And, you know, like the dazzling yeah, Kilman yeah. through through conformist Yowie. I mean, mm-hmm. Yowie's probably one of our closest peers in in the, in the St. Louis scene. What what I mean by that is maybe more also age. You know what I mean? In that like, there's the the Alice Cunningham and the Joe Hess bands and stuff. Those kind of came a little later. You know, you mm-hmm. guys have both had 
great runs and doing great things. I, I, another thing I was thinking, side note, Caleb, I, I know you were in Kami Chung, but there was some, were you in another band? Like, I feel like at, when I first met you, you were in three bands or something like that. Yeah, uh, you remember Disorange? Yes. Or, I mean, uh, remember might be a bit strong of a word. Um, but uh, yeah, that's probably the other one you're thinking of. Okay. But but your STL punk name was was disorange related, wasn't it? Like, uh, may, maybe. Oh, but... uh, you know, Ava six 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 Rice. I think was my first STL punk oh. name. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Unrelated to anything. I think that was the first one. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I was in Puppet Show too for a while for three oh, okay. three years. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, there was an era of Puppet Show that I never saw. I feel like I think I saw the Pat Bolin era mm-hmm. uh so jordan played drums in puppet show correct uh, no he was the main uh he was like the songwriter so both of you were in puppet show right at the same time or no different times yeah yeah different eras i think yeah okay and i think okay, i would okay. play a few shows with them mm-hmm. was puppet show like a rotating cast of characters type thing like where it's scarecrow radio where it could be when it started off it was uh yeah you know jordan was like a freshman and i was a senior or no He's a sophomore. It doesn't matter. We were in high school. It was a solid, like, three-piece lineup for, for his high school time. Sorry. Who was the others in the lineup? Uh, John Helwig oh, uh, yeah. was oh, the okay. drummer, and he was in my high school band as well. And this guy, Andy Jordan, played bass and then, like, Korg keyboard and then guitars. I feel like it's um, always Jordan's. It's it's uh, That's definitely his creation, and it's like he is yeah. the boss in Puppet Show. So it's not like Scarecrow Radio in that regard, where Rick is just like, hey, man, you want to be in Scarecrow? That's cool. Like, uh... <laughs> Improvisational theater at the same time. Right. You know, like, it's like, a, I don't yeah. know. It, it's a mixture. Mm-hmm. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I mean, like, there's so many people that I know that were at some point in Puppet Show. I mean, Andrew Gowan. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forgot about uh, that guy. You know, yeah. yeah, so so it's really hard for me to go, oh, you were in Puppet Show? Because I, re- like, uh, I saw Puppet Show four or five times, you know, at the Olympics. I can't remember sometimes whether I know you guys more from being around the Lemp or playing with your bands at the Lemp. Or, mm-hmm. you know, there was definitely a Lemp era. I always liked the Lemp, uh, despite, you know, other people's... Some people had hang-ups when it came to Mark. I got along with right. Mark fine. Some people uh, accused me of liking Mark because Mark kissed our band's ass. Oh, but, yeah. Mark uh, loved you guys. I guess my point is that I never had the experience of being talked down to or being mean to by Mark like some people have, so I don't I don't share that experience. But the other idea of the LIMP, the, the communal effort of it, it seemed like the kids-only clubhouse, you know, no adults allowed. The other thing is, like, it's so refreshing to not play in a bar. Yeah. To yeah. play a room where people come... And they pay a, a, a cheap amount or pay what they can to come and sit on shitty couches to watch bands play. Like mm-hmm. they came to for music and that's it. Yep. I mean, maybe to see their friends, but that was so refreshing and so needed for, for the conformists at that time. I don't think spraying the crowd with Stetson in... Um, <laughs> in that was uh, amazing, by the way. <laughs> so the original concept was supposed to be Michael Jordan cologne. But uh, I think... I th- and, and Chris will have to correct me on this one, but he was in a secret Santa thing at work, and some somebody gave him a Michael Jordan cologne and soap set, and he, and it was it was bouncing around Swansea House for a minute, and we were like, 
we should do a show where we all take a shower and cover ourselves in Michael Jordan's soap. Like, let's <laughs> let's take a shower in Michael Jordan's soap and then slather on Michael Jordan cologne and just like make no reference to it and just play a normal show. But we will reek like something. But that turned into like, let's buy a couple bottles of Stetson and we will attack. We'll just spray Stetson everywhere. And somebody later told me that the lamp smelled like Stetson for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I oh, can yeah. I can attest to that. And uh, <laughs> I know I was telling Caleb last week. I was like, I gotta ask him about the cologne show. <laughs> That's always stuck out to me as like something no nobody else would do. You know, like <laughs> I I feel I I feel like I remember it. Like you disconnected the microphone. And you took the microphone and went into one of the side closets in the limp and spent some time in there <laughs> while the rest of the band kept playing the same note over and over again. And then you It could have been out. dance. Yeah, it could have been dance. Yeah, that it could have been sense. dance. And uh, then you just like emptied the whole bottle of cologne. And it was just like it was fucking insane. And there was like a part of part of me was like, I love this. And I was like, is this gonna trigger my migraine? You know, like, <laughs> oh no! You know? But it was. I turned out okay. And it smelled yeah. like uh, cologne for the next handful of shows that I went to. I think the idea was that we were going to be in the cologne, and I think a couple of the people didn't want to be covered in cologne. And I was like, I'll, I'll do it. I, I mean, I, I'll cover myself in the cologne. So I think yeah. it started there. And I'm like, well, I smell like this cologne, and I'm sweaty. I'm going to rub on people, and then I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to spray them. I have the rest of the bottle in my hand. So. I was walking around and I put a couple puffs on the floor and on the couches and I just started making my way around the room in my, in my memory of it. Um, yeah, you definitely circled that room probably like 15, <laughs> 20 times. Yeah. You got we're, your steps we're e in for sure. Were either of you guys at the show where we did Silent Night with the air horns in it? It was a Christmas era show. We decided, so, you know, if you remember, we did a Silent Night version a long time ago and, uh, Tom's dad had this like, I guess like in the seventies, people had organs at their house. Like they had those, you know, those organs, like that makes the soundtrack to Napoleon dynamite, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, yep. but this one was small and it was an air organ. It was like, you plug it in and there's a fan that moves. Mm -hmm. And like, when you press the keys, it just goes like, hey. <laughs> and, yeah. and Tom played silent night on that thing. And that's, we did silent night for that Christmas comp that Matt Harnish did, uh, like in the, late 90s and and i don't know if you ever heard that but we put a, a really high-pitched tone over our whole song um <laughs> i've not i remember seeing the comp on oh. your merch table and it's the i think it's the only like audio i never bought from you guys so so somebody put it on it. youtube somebody put it on youtube so um nice. i i was looking at something and i saw it and i'm like oh shit and i as soon as it started playing i'm like oh god this is brutal we did a silent night uh, we like the idea is that we were going to do a silent night. I was not, I'm a little bit of a better singer than I was then. Um, I, I was a, a lot more flat then, but in the bathroom of Decker, Chris Deckard's apartment, we <laughs> recorded silent night for this compilation. Tom played the air organs to play silent night. We kind of did silent night straight through and then did our little conformist twist on it. And, and it was tape manipulation that made that effect happen. It, it, it falls apart in, in, in conformist fashion. But then we bring in the string section. So, like, we took Silent Night off. Like, it, it, it goes off after that. Chris, yeah. Chris Deep starts playing this acoustic guitar part. Chris Decker joins with a, a, a stand-up bass. 
And Tom had this really neat thing where he would strike a cymbal and then he was like using the vibrations of the cymbal to rattle off the drumstick. You, you should check mm. out the second half of the song. But here's, here's the most noteworthy part of the song. Somebody, and it wasn't me, I wish I could take credit for this, but somebody had the idea of let's put a high-pitched tone in there. And Chris Deckard <laughs> had some kind of knob and he's like, like here? And it was like a high-pitched like tone. And they're like, no, higher 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 and they just kept turning it up and then he turns and looks at us and goes you guys are assholes and it was like it was like kind of like high high microphone feedback high Oof, pitch. yeah yeah and and it's just a tone through the whole song <laughs> and oh, that's amazing it's just one it doesn't vary it just it just it's like a drone through the whole thing but it's it's super high when you start listening to the song you smile you laugh about it or whatever but when this when you listen to the song from start to finish and when it ends you have physical relief you go oh you know oh, uh and it, it's a real thing my point is we did it at the limp and we thought let's do silent night live we've never done it live let's do silent night and so <laughs> i had a fire truck siren so we took a siren control box and a, and a siren speaker and we we had an old shipping crate and we we took the whole siren we put it inside this box and, and put a car, uh, put a car battery in there to power it. So we had it all wired up, and we had a foot switch on it. The idea is that we were going to do Silent Night, and then he was going to hold out the last note of the air horn. I'm sorry, the last note of the uh, air organ, and then stomp on the foot switch and set the Q2B siren. We fired off full blast in the lamp. And meanwhile, Tom and I were in the front, and we were in charge of the siren thing. Tom was doing the organ. I was ready to step on the foot switch. And Jim and Chris had bought those uh, um, disposable air horns that you can get at like sporting events. And they, they had them and they, they walked to the back of the audience. So Tom and I were doing something that was visually interesting enough where people were not paying attention to Chris and Jim sneaking to the back of the crowd. <laughs> and then we hit them at the same time from two angles with air horns in the siren. It was great. It was, it was absolutely great. It scared the shit out of a lot of people. It was, it was awesome. Perfect. Yeah, I, I wish I'd been there. Uh, <laughs> we kind of talked like we don't want to be the zany band, but we want to be the band that like maybe you could see us play a really solid rock show or a really like a really good performance, or we could fucking turn turn tables on you at any second. You know what I mean? And do something bizarre off the wall. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think you're very successful in that. When you see you guys enough times, like, uh, and then you start, like, I mean, I remember me and my high school buddies, like me and Josh Levi and uh, whoever else is following <laughs> you around at the time, like Zach Holtzman or uh, Ryan yeah. or whoever. Uh, after a certain point in time, you have all these, like, young kids who are, like, expecting all of those specific pleasures from different parts of your set. And that's the point at which, you know, maybe every fifth or seventh or something, you're like, okay, we have to do something different because there's too many people expecting too much yeah. of the same. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That... Absolutely. We've talked out. We've talked out some concepts that never came to fruition. Um, uh, some of them put us in some sort of suffering. Mm -hmm. In that, like, some of it is like settings. Like, what if we, what if we played and we were all laying face down, and the guitar players <laughs> had to try to play while laying on their own hands on their own guitars? And Ugh, uh, yeah. Like, would it, would it be stupid or would it be awesome? You know, like, uh, and, and I had a fake solo project. I did one show. It was called 100% Cotton. Um, I remember we played at the <laughs> Lamp name. with uh, If I Had a Hi-Fi from, uh, they ended up being good friends of ours from Milwaukee, but I think it was like the first or second show. And I booked it and nobody else could play that day or something. The concept behind 100% Cotton is to do a fully silent set 
there's no sounds or as little sounds as possible. So I would wear sweatpants and big socks and like a ski mask and gloves. So like, I don't make any sounds. <laughs> um, I was very, very played out on the old uh, knob twisting uh, uh, pedals scene, like the noise scene. Yeah. So I had, I had two pedals that weren't plugged into anything that I would turn the knobs on and they wouldn't make any sounds. <laughs> but I was, I was doing the pantomiming of like you, what you would see like, you know, putting my hands in the air, like feel this, you know, kind of bullshit that, that you always see <laughs> yeah. base, basement noise kids do. I, I just like, it was so played out at that period of time. I was just it was like, it was just, right. And at one point I like started to be like a kid and I stood both, I grabbed each pedal in each hand, like they were toys and like they were playing, like they were like two <laughs> action figures fighting, you know, and, and I was just doing, I was doing dumb shit to entertain um, I also wanted to make sure the set didn't go long because, like, I had like seven funny ideas and I wanted to get through them and be done. So it, it was only about ten minutes. I did this thing where I, I had an acoustic guitar on a guitar stand across the room, and I was playing it with a uh, laser pointer. You know what I mean? Like I was <laughs> pretending to strum the guitar with a laser pointer. You know, and I was like, you know, I was very transfixed in my own bullshit. You know, like. I can appreciate noise bands or noise for what it is. I appreciate bands that make noise rather than individuals that make noise, I think, because it's fun to do. It's really fun to do if you're the performer. Uh, as an audience, I just like, I think it falls short and it goes long. I think Ghost Eyes has, uh, so Jeremy's always been perfect to me in that like, he knows that what he's doing is interesting visually He's doing different things on an audible level and he's, he's in, he performs and he's out. You know I mean? It doesn't, I don't ever go, when is ghost ice going to be done? And he's smart in that regard. And I think that's why he's so well, besides being good at it, he, I think that's one of the reasons he's so well regarded is that he, he understands the mortality of his own sets or whatever, you know? Like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, well, the first time I saw him was the first time I saw you guys. And before 19th that, birthday. I, yeah, there you go. <laughs> He, uh, you know, I thought I was going to I was going to leave before he played because I heard he was a noise musician. And I, I kind of I felt the same way. Like, I just felt like it was a kind of self-indulgent or whatever. I'd only seen a few noise acts at the time, but like I saw him play and it was just totally different. You know, he's definitely a big exception. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, if you know the human behind it, he's just such a great guy. too. It's amazing. So that was our interview with Mike Banker. I want to thank Mike and The Conformists for letting us use their music in this podcast. To check them out, go to theconformists.com. You have been listening to Grind the Arch, Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene, hosted by me, Caleb True, and Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode has been mixed by me, Caleb True. The Grind the Arch logo was designed by Julia Hahn. To check out more episodes, go to anchor.fm slash grindthearch. If you dig this podcast, please rate and review it. If you have questions or comments, we can be reached at grindthearch at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.